You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson, where we talk with some of the biggest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what should be top of mind for the C-suite and other key security leaders. I'm Ann Johnson, and today we're talking about the cybercrime of digital abuse and the technology that is being used to seamlessly integrate a user-first data governance strategy for digital safety management and incident detection and resolution. Today, I'm joined by Flynn Adams, co-founder of IntelliCorp. Flynn's personal experience of digital abuse that endangered the lives of her young family, followed by the rabbit hole of inaction, frustration, and trauma, led her to become a staunch advocate for digital safety as a fundamental human rights dedicated and further technology that standardizes and accelerates the resolution of digitally perpetrated incidents. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea, Flynn. Thank you for having me. That was, I think, probably the most incredible introduction I've I've ever had. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you liked it. So let's get started. You have a pretty incredible story, and I'd like for you to share the journey that led you to help develop a technology tool that provides access to manage and control the outcomes of a human's digital experiences. Sure. Um, this is, as uh, as you know, um, my very least favorite thing to talk about, <laughs> but it's probably my most important talking point. You know, we can start with the fact that I'm six foot three. I'm a woman in tech, you know, in cybersecurity, no less. And I also have a celebrity for a mother. So one could argue that the surface area for the target on my back for anonymous abuse vectors is, is probably larger than most, right? <laughs> but, you know, like, anyone who spent any kind of time on the internet, you, you unfortunately start to, to normalize navigating through things like trolling and bullying as, as an accepted daily practice. And you ignore it until you can't. And for me, it was not until I was an executive at a very well-known technology company that I had my first experience with you know, really how quickly unmanaged abuse incidents can actually escalate into real threats of violence. Um, for me, there were two individuals in particular, uh, a husband and wife, who I've heard in, in daylight masquerade as, you know, quality people. But they kind of bypassed the traditional methods of harassment that I was used to. I'm a stupid woman. I shouldn't be in my job. And they went right into creating fake accounts, pretending to be me, my husband, other family members, uh, created pages where they impersonated our business. Um, you know, and, and one day they, they went so far as to post my home address where actual pedophiles, I don't know how I want to say this, they um, came to my front door to come cash in on advertised services. Um, sorry, I need a second. It's, you know, six years later, and this is still like the worst story to tell. But, you know. <sighs> yeah, take a moment, Flynn, really. It's, it's I've heard the story. I know. So. <laughs> so many times, but like every time for me, it's, it's that, you know, really as a parent, I I always try to tell my son that my most important job is to keep him safe. You know, what do you do? You know, what does anyone do when someone else makes the deliberate choice to weaponize technology to make that job impossible for you, right? To, to willfully put, put you, your family, in my case, a a three-year-old, you know, in danger, 
simply because it was funny to them or attention grabbing or or serve some sort of other unknown nefarious purpose? And most importantly, why aren't there enforceable consequences for that kind of behavior, right? Because the reality is, is you know, there is no internet sheriff in town that you can, you can call to enforce your digital safety. And what scared me most in my situation, you know, to be perfectly honest, was if anybody's experienced this kind of abuse, right? You, you reach out in desperation to whatever you have access to. And even with, I'll call it, you know, the, the good fortune of, of my life circumstance, right? My family relationships, my professional contacts, you know, I, I had direct access to the heads of security, to the heads of the legal departments at these platforms where this behavior was happening, you know, direct contact to high ranking law enforcement officers, and not even that helped. Right. And to this day, my situation was never was never resolved, not in a meaningful way. And I just couldn't shake this thought that, you know, my God, you know, like the people who you can call can't help. And the ones who should be helping won't. So this this whole idea of equal access to something as simple as digital safety, it's it's not that it's not available to everyone. It's really not available to anyone. And ultimately, right, we're all faced with the choice to, well, the only choice really, which is to give up. And the current system in place is actually, you know, it's betting on that. And for me, that was, you know, that was really the motivating frustration behind creating IntelliCore to, to find a way to advocate for standards in digital safety as a human right, but also to develop effective solutions that actually address matters of, of personal safety. You know, your story is, is just a horrific story of what can happen in the wild, wild of the digital ecosystem, right? And people can be anything they want to be and hide behind anything they want to hide. And they can, you know, all the way through like swatting, right? Or the situation you had for just, it's really disgusting, right? That people are showing up at your doorstep. And I, yeah, I don't have a lot of words for it either. And we believe, you know, that privacy is a fundamental human right. But I want to talk to you about your point of view that I know you have that digital safety is also a fundamental human right. Sure. My uh, my position is pretty strong, right? The internet is not safe for anyone at all, ever. <laughs> um, you know, digital abuse is, is escalating at the same rate as internet growth, right? And, and that number isn't getting any smaller. And we're in a position now where, you know, two-thirds of our world's population is targeted with abusive and criminal digital behavior every single day. This is the I would argue the largest unresolved problem that exists on the internet. And we have absolutely no way to manage or control our experiences. It's not about, I'm not into fear mongering. Uh, it, it's just that the reality is, is that when it comes to individual user safety, no one has a corner to hide in anymore. You know, this, this is really an, an everyone who is in the position to help should be helping kind of a problem. And, you know, I've been doing this for five years, six years now, and it's, you know, when you get into the guts of what's really happening, you know, the biggest problems aren't really technological, they're systemic. And there are enormous investments being made, not just money, but, you know, time and effort into accelerating the growth and the development of technology that connects people. And that connectivity is, it's a wonderful thing, right? I mean, we, we're living in a, in a really exciting time in human history but there are literally no investments being made in a human-centered approach to digital safety. And it, for me, was that realization that, you know, when the individuality 
or the humanity of our deeply personal experiences starts to get lost in you know generalized applications of terms of service and you know the fact that platforms we use every day have permitted us really to to behave badly for this long with impunity i mean maybe all of us have forgotten that you know there are real people with real problems who need real help on the other end of that screen and you know maybe we should start asking the the right questions yeah and i think that you know, we focus a lot in cybersecurity on, on cybercrime against organizations, but we don't focus enough on cybercrimes against individuals. And, you know, you do a lot of work, and I want you to talk a little about your company, but what are the common things you see in cybercrime, right, that's perpetrated against individuals and that actually would be classified, you know, potentially as criminal? You know, what's what's interesting, so when we first started building, you know, our tools, platforms, and protocols, there were a lot of variables, right? You know, the subjectivity of abuse, how do you address that? Um, but also this whole idea about the criminality of reputational cybercrime, that to me was the most fascinating thing to address, right? And there's still a lot that we don't know. But the reality is that there aren't any clear-cut parameters about what those quote-unquote crimes are because there aren't any laws. You know, at best, what we're doing right now is applying existing case law or, or adding provisions to existing statutes to address a new set of crimes that, that require I mean, pretty much the drafting of their own set of laws, right? And what we always tell people, no matter what you're experiencing, if it's bullying, if it's harassment, you know, if you go so far as having to report an incident to law enforcement, um, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, but <laughs> you never, never, never accept, you know, the response at face value that they can't do anything because it's not a crime. You know, ask them what statute they're basing that on, right? There is a real obligation on behalf of the social media companies, digital platforms, and law enforcement federally and digitally to investigate, right? And for us, that was really where this idea of a standardized approach to safety came into play. So Flynn, we've all seen the numbers. We know that digital abuse is rising. Um, we also know that the rate of users on the internet is rising. Can you talk about some common ways people can protect themselves and also what your organization is doing to protect people? Sure. Um, when we started to build TRIP, right? It, it's We never intended to build a single piece of software or application. We developed we developed TRIP knowing that it was going to evolve over time forever and ever and ever, right? Uh, right now, you can use our evidence capture tools. We have a lot of tools coming out soon too for personal use applications, you know, that allow you to manage your entire digital profile, predictive protocols, law enforcement integrations. Um, but the, the baseline principle for the way that we've attacked this problem is really that a human being's sense of safety should not be up to an algorithm and you know it, it shouldn't really be up to law enforcement for that matter it should be up to the person who's experiencing that behavior and we wanted to both programmatically and procedurally give people that end-to-end -end control to not only define their own boundaries but to expedite the process in in the resolution chain and when it comes to a standardized approach to architecting, you know, a, a platform for digital safety. You know, there, there's two answers. There's the technology and then there's the procedure. And for us, you know, the, the, the technology is 
Look, machine learning is historically super bad at addressing human behavior. Far too many variables were unpredictable, right? <laughs> but with TRIP, what we focused on was, was architecting a solution that allowed users to define their own boundaries. So the accuracy of those classifiers can actually account for things like context, right? When helping to make a decision about an individual's deeply personal parameters. And, you know, using my situation as an example, right? So if someone were to post in my feed that, you know, my son looked cute in his outfit today, you know, to me, I would immediately report that. And, you know, currently you're gonna get an automated response that says, sorry, this doesn't violate our terms of service, but it certainly violates my sense of safety. So the application here was really, you know, it's no different than another any other security protocol, right? You're identifying safety anomalies in real time that require your attention based off of the parameters that you provide. And then secondarily, from the procedural perspective, um, you know, digital platforms, you know, they want you to believe that this problem is simply just too big for them to solve at scale. And law enforcement, unfortunately, for the most part, just doesn't have the time, the training, or the resources to address the volume of complaints that they're receiving every day. But the solution is actually, I think, a lot simpler than, than you'd think, right? If reports are submitted in the same way, in the same format, forensically captured with evidentiary grade data, then there's no excuse not to investigate a report as, as it comes in. Yeah, and I know your organization, because you and I have talked about some of the cases you've worked, you have these great relationships that you've built with law enforcement, and I know you can't be specific, but can you just talk about how and why you built those relationships, and what impact do you think it's had? It's interesting. Okay, so my my partner, uh, Brian Austin Green, who is uh, very clearly not a technologist, but, you know, to his credit, is... He is a, uh, you know, a force to be reckoned with, with respect to, you know, his work with, with child safety. But when we came up with this idea, he said something that it just, it rang as profoundly true, right? Which is before we can build anything, we have a responsibility to actually understand the problem first. And he was right, you know, and, and we had to pursue it from every angle. We created community uh, support services where we actually worked with people one-on-one -on -one to help them resolve these very serious problems when all other means failed. Uh, we worked with government agencies, um, you know, law enforcement, federally and locally, to really understand the investigative and, and resolution cycle of reported incidents. And what was so fascinating to me was that, I don't know that anybody knows this, but no one has ever taken the time to define a comprehensive ontology of reported abuse or reputational cybercrime. So all of these efforts are being made in, a, you know, in an attempt to solve something that nobody understands. So talk a little bit about what your service does and then for the average internet user, how they can either take advantage of your service or how they can protect themselves or take advantage of other services. Again, right now, the, the tool set that we have available is, is the evidence capture tool. And the idea behind that is really, you never know when something bad is going to happen and you never know when an incident is going to escalate into something worse. So the idea that you have you know, a tool set to be able to preserve uh, in the right way if you should ever need it, right? Um, I think with respect to you know digital safety and and other other tools to use you know we always tell people that the first rule of digital safety is you should never allow 
a piece of technology to make a safety decision for you. The second rule of digital safety is you should never allow a piece of technology to make a safety decision for you. But if you can access a group of tools and make your own decisions, right, it's, it's really about using technology as a way to augment um, your decision making, right, and sort of exercising your own personal security uh, hygiene as well, right? I think that's really reasonable advice. What are the common things you see? Are there common threads that people should be looking out for? One of my favorite things to do is actually to talk to students at school, to give them sort of, you know, a realistic and comprehensive look at how the behaviors that they're exhibiting online, while they seem normal to them, are are actually permanent and in some in some ways life-changing, right? And what we look for, again, when it comes to prosecution and, you know, criminality, right, when it escalates to that level, it's intent and frequency, right? So when we tell somebody, a child, right, you know, hey, when you decide to post uh, on, you know, your friend or on, on someone's page, you know, you're stupid, I hope you die, and you do it three times, you've now established a pattern of conduct, you've committed a felony, and it scares people when they hear that. I mean, a lot of it has to do with whether or not you can find the right DA to prosecute that. But again, identifying that, you know, willful intent to, to cause harm to somebody else, right? And my, my favorite response that we get back from not just children, but from adults is, I didn't mean to, it was an accident. And when you really think about it, it's, you know, especially with, with the bullying and the harassment, the sexual harassment that we see, the death threats, the, the threats of, you know, telling people that they should kill themselves. You know, we ask them, you know, did you open up your, your application for whatever platform that is? Yes. Did you go to that person's page to leave a DM? Yes. Did you type out the DM? Yes. Did you post that DM? Yes. It sounds like a whole lot of, you know, on purposes, to qualify as an accident. Um, and for us, it, it's really been about also advocating for the fact that, you know, accountability on, on the internet, it, it's a two-way street, right? By no means are we advocating for technology that polices the internet, right? You know, non-offensive conformity is also not an answer. That's, that's stupid. But, you know, you start to think about things in the way that, you know, look, you, you need to be 21 in order to drink. You need a driver's license, drive a car, or you get in trouble we're permitted this unfettered access to a world that has no rules, but that is not an invitation to be reckless, right? You know, the freedom of speech is something that we always, uh, we always encounter and it's always a fascinating, you know, dialogue that we have with people. Um, and quite frankly, you know, I always say, you know, being an asshole is, it's not a protected civil liberty. It's a choice. And it's not my position to tell you, you know, what you can or can't or should or shouldn't say on the internet, right? Express yourself, but know that I, on the receiving end of that, have a right to protect myself. And when we're unable to engage in a civil exchange of ideas in public forums that don't include telling somebody that you want to kill them or rape them or hurt them when you disagree with them, then you're also willing to accept the consequences that come with that kind of behavior. And that's on you. Would it be reasonable to, to, to say, like a rule of thumb, is if you weren't willing to say something to this person in person, you shouldn't be putting it on the internet. And, you know, these anonymous trolls and all these people that just feel like they can just make horrible, you know, comments. You know, if I wouldn't say it to you, Flynn, it shouldn't be something I put on the internet. Right. 
Um, and I think people hide behind that, that veil of, of anonymity, sometimes not, I guess, remembering that there's a human being on the other side of that. And what we always say too, is that, you know, I, I think this freedom of speech, right, is, is too often confused with the great privilege that we have to speak freely, right? And when we know the difference, we can give both our rights and our privileges the profound respect that they deserve. And yes, if you're not gonna say it to my face, you shouldn't be saying it at all. But when you do say certain things to people's face, there are consequences and it should be no different here. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think the work you're doing is both heroic, it's unique, and it's not work that a lot of people are doing. I guess to close off the conversation, um, we always try to give the audience some practical advice. Top two things you'd say people should do to protect their identities today, to protect their digital safety? You know, you you never know when something bad is going to happen, right? And you never know when situations will escalate. So capture what you see. And if you, if you want to use our tools, we would love it. Um, if you don't, just remember that the way that you capture it determines what you can do with it. We use evidentiary grade data, and it's not because the intention is to put everybody who says something bad in jail. <laughs> it's really just that the standard of how that, that data is taken in is at its highest threshold. And then I think also, I mean, secondarily, you know, this is more philosophical, but you know, you need to be your own advocate. No one has the right to say or do anything that makes you feel unsafe no one. And likewise, no one has the right to tell you that you shouldn't do anything about it. And I think when you put those two things together, you know, that's really where accountability and control over your own digital safety begins. Yeah. And I reflect back, I wrote a blog. It's probably been like four years. My, my child, who's now 20, was, was still a teen. But I, I was reflecting on how that generation just doesn't have the concept of privacy that my generation had, right? They're, they just share everything. And there's so much, you know, the internet's forever, number one. So they should think about it from a school, you know, college acceptance and career standpoint down the road. But that aside, the, they don't have this concept of privacy, right? And they don't have this concept of things that shouldn't be shared. And I think that the pendulum needs to switch back, Absolutely. flip back just a bit. And you said it the right way, right? We're, we're conflating, you know, our free speech rights with speaking freely. And we actually need to protect ourselves, right? Be an advocate and protect yourself. And I think that's the best advice we could give people. Be really thoughtful about what you're putting on there because it could be used against you in a really, um, in a very, very malicious way. Yes. Well, thank you, Flynn. I appreciate you joining us at Afternoon Cyber Tea. Oh, I so appreciate being here. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> and, yeah, no worries. And many thanks to our audience. And we will catch you again on the next episode of Afternoon Cyber Tea. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, we're talking scumbots with Paul Melson. Believe me, you're going to want to hear this. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.